We read the Old Testament differently because we know the major subject, the major character is Jesus. And when Jesus shows up, we say, oh, that's what this was yeah. all about, which is exactly what Jesus tells the, his critics in John chapter 5. You read the scriptures, he says, because you think they, they are the means of eternal life. Well, you're wrong. The Bible is not the means of eternal life. I am. And if you knew how to read the Bible, you would recognize me. And in fact, on the day of, this is part of that snarky Jesus, on the day of judgment, I will not be your judge. Moses, whom you love so much, will be your judge. Because if Moses was here today, he would recognize me. That, that I think, is a real succinct statement of how we should read the Bible. We're not looking for great heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. We're looking for how does this point us forward to Jesus? Welcome to The Search Podcast, where we have conversations about the big questions of God and life. I'm your host, Blaine Larson, and today it's part three of our Story of the Bible series. I'm joined today, as I have been the last couple weeks, by Dr. Glenn Kreider, professor of theological studies at Dallas Theological Seminary. Dr. Kreider, thank you for being my guest. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, we've promised everybody that we're going to give them a recap every episode of the Story of the Bible podcast, a recap of a succinct version of the story. So let's just start there. Uh, What's the story of the Bible in a couple minutes? And then we're going to dive into the, the last part of the story here beginning in the New Testament when you're done with that. Yeah, so thanks, Blaine. The um, literary scholars often talk about a meta-narrative, a big story, an overarching theme. What we have in the Scripture is a a number of historical books. We have poetic literature, wisdom sayings, gospels, letters, apocalyptic, a number of different genres of scripture. And it's possible that what we have here is a library, a collection of books that were just put together for no reason at all. That's a bit of an overstatement. Or what we have is a collection of writings that tell one grand story. And increasingly, many Christian scholars, biblical uh, studies uh, people, theologians, uh, historians recognize that what we have in the Bible is a grand story of redemption. Like every grand story, there's a beginning. Genesis 1 and 2, the accounts of creation— uh, like every grand story, there's some conflict or some tension that needs to be resolved uh, that's introduced in Genesis chapter 3 in the fall. And then we get the chance to watch how the Creator responds to the challenges to His plan for His creation. And from Genesis 4 all the way through the Old Testament Scripture, all the way through the New Testament and all the way through the last book of the New Testament through Revelation 20, we get to see God responding redemptively to challenges and threats, uh, in short, rebellion against his plan for his creation. And then the, the story ends in Revelation 21 and 22, where God makes his dwelling on the earth forever. This is the end of the story, but it's not the end of history, because that the 
the state at the end of the biblical story is a state of eternality where things continue as creatures. We continue to interact with one another and with God in time and space. And I think things continue to improve and get better and better and better throughout the, the throughout eternity as well. So creation, fall, and recreation maybe should also say that not everybody who sees this grand story believes it unfolds in three acts. Some see four, some five, six, seven. But uh, I think there's a really nice parallel to the triune God that, that we see ones and threes, that creation, fall, and redemption, and recreation. I also like that. Uh, that many people would refer to the last as uh, restoration or redemption. Uh, I like the, the the parallel and yet the elevation of creation then to recreation, the heavens and the earth, and a new heaven and new earth, to use the biblical language. That is a great summary. Thank you very, very much. When we left last time, we had run through the whole Old Testament narrative very fast, but just that's what we're trying to do here, though, truthfully, is give a high-level overview of, of the story of the Bible, the, the big things that are going on. And we ended by noting that uh, Malachi, which is – it's the last in order <clears throat> of the uh, New, Te- New Testament books. So if you go right – or Old, Old Testament. Testament, sorry. But if you go to uh, Matthew, go left, you'll find uh, Malachi there right at the end of the Old Testament. And in Malachi – Malachi the prophet talks about one who would come before the Messiah to set up the Messiah, the one that that Israel has been waiting for. Why don't we pick up the story here, and then we'll get into who that Messiah is and, and what he does. And who the forerunner is as well. Malachi's not the only one who refers to one who comes before the Messiah, um, Isaiah refers to the, to one too, but but the, in the way the 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 Bible is put together, it's it's hard to miss. We come to the end of the Old Testament and we hear these two things: uh, one, remember the law of my servant Moses, the doctrine, the decrees and laws I gave him to Horeb, at Horeb for all Israel. That there's a reminder of the importance of the law given through Moses, a a law that reminds us that God is a God of mercy and grace and redemption who desires to bless, but also promises judgment, curses, to use the language of Deuteronomy, on those who rebel against him. So although God is a gracious and merciful God in his justice, Judgment and condemnation often um, often are experienced by rebels. Um, so here's the what what does it mean to say remember the law of my servant Moses? I think it is a reminder that God expects, desires, demands that His people follow Him, obey Him, and when they realize that they are not living appropriately, they should repent. And then the second thing is Malachi promises the prophet Elijah will come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the hearts of the children to their parents or fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. So there seems to be this promise that sometime in the future, 
there will be one who will remind people of the promises of God and call them to repentance. And then there is silence for about 400 years. A lot happens during that period of time. There's a Maccabean revolt. There's all kinds of things that happen in Israel during that period of time. But there are no prophets. Uh, God is not speaking. And even writings during that time, Maccabees, Prayer of Azariah, say there are no prophets in the land. So it's, it's, so there's, it, it's almost like God knows what he's doing. It's almost like he's he's making this point clearly and explicitly when this strange character comes out of the wilderness with a very simple message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. And this one is surely, clearly, obviously, I think, the fulfillment of Malachi. And Jesus seems to say so too when he refers to, to John as Elijah who has who is to come. And the promise, the message of Elijah is repent for the kingdom is near. Um, and, uh, and some people do repent. He has a lot of followers. But eventually John is executed, like often happens to righteous people and prophets throughout history, uh, so that Elijah is not the Messiah. He is the one who uh, who comes in advance, announcing him. And so that in, Mal- in Matthew, when Jesus appears, Jesus has the same message. Jesus is proclaiming, repent for the kingdom is near, or repent in response to the presence of the kingdom. We have this long expectation, because I think it goes all the way back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, that a good God will establish the reign of righteousness and justice and peace on this planet, that that uh, the presence of injustice throughout history, the presence of conflict throughout history is not God's plan for his world, but is an outworking and an unfolding of the rebellion that we see for the first time in in the in the fall so there will be injustice so there's a, so that there is this hope and increasingly throughout the biblical story the promises made to david his eternal kingdom the promises of the prophets that particularly isaiah for example that there will be this kingdom of righteousness justice peace prosperity that lasts forever so this is hope and this expectation of this coming king. But there's also the dissonance, because Isaiah, in chapter 53, refers to a suffering servant who dies. So we have this tension between a conquering ruler who defeats the enemies and establishes this eternal kingdom, and this suffering servant who dies for the sake of the people. And it's hard to put those two things together. Uh, I recently um, did a sermon on this contradiction in the Bible uh, that the angels announce in Luke chapter 2 um, he comes to bring peace on earth and favor on those on whom his favor rests. 
blessing on those who may favor us. Uh, Matthew 10, Jesus says, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. That's a contradiction. Unless it is true in one sense and in one place and not in another. Mm -hmm. Here's my point in calling attention to that. I think it's easy for us to read through the biblical story and to say, this is so obvious, everybody should have understood that the Messiah comes twice. (laughs) You know why we think that is so obvious? Because he did. And we are living in between the first and the second coming that over the, we talked about it last week, over the, the history of the Old Testament, there's this long period of time while people are waiting for God to act and to respond. This is 400 years between Malachi and John. And here we are now thousands of years after the Messiah's first coming, and we're still crying with the people of faith throughout history. How long? Oh, Lord, how long? How can you? How can you look at what's happening in the world and not do something about it? People have been lamenting the current state as long as there have been people. And I really do think the coming of Jesus in his first advent actually increases the tension because there there has been the the uh, fulfillment of some of the promises and a foretaste of what is to come. Paul describes the Spirit is given to us as a down payment, as a first fruit, as a, for, uh, for, uh, a foretaste of what is to come. And that's That we've had this sense of what is coming, so we have a greater longing for, uh, for what is to come. We have these four Gospels, uh, and they're all different. They're telling... The same story of this God-man, this one who is fully human, and his humanity is never in question in the Gospels, who seems to be talking about himself as if he is more than simply him. He compares himself to God. He claims to have the prerogative to forgive sin. He walks on water. He feeds masses of people with a small lunch. He raises people from the dead. He predicts his own death and his resurrection and pulls it off. I mean, that's a pretty significant <laughs> that a big deal. That's that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Um, so that there's there there clearly is there, there there clearly is tension here, and all four Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell the same stories. There are there are miracles that occur feeding of the 5,000, for example, uh, in each one of them. And then there are, there are distinctive details, and the styles are different. So Matthew writes in—he he has major discourses where Jesus stops and teaches for a while, the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse, several others in between. Mark is much more rapid fire, probably— Peter was his source. Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, Mark just tells the stories kind of rapid fire. Luke is much more what you would expect from an historian, a scientist. He lays out this argument. Then along comes John and says, uh, you guys missed some things that are really important here. John has some—it was more red letters in John than in the rest of them. Those are the important letters. 
Those are the important words. <laughs> that actually is, I mean, I, that's a joke, but that actually is what a lot of people believe. The words of Jesus are more important than the words that are um, uh, uh, people other than Jesus. No, they're all, they're all God's words. But there, there's a, we do hear Jesus. I, I, I love John, and I, lo- I love the Jesus who is in John. He's a smart aleck. He's, <laughs> he is, um, the, my, my reminder is that if you do and speak and act like Jesus did, the same thing that happened to him will probably happen to you too. But there's some real, <laughs> there's some perverse pleasure in watching him respond really starkly to people. Well, you you can't. It's it's like one of the problems with reading the Bible correctly. Okay, in all seriousness, you go back to something you said in the very first podcast. We've got to learn how to read the Bible correctly, especially if you're somebody who's considering. Christianity, you really are investigating, you're very interested in Jesus, and you want to know what he's all about and what this faith is all about. Part of it's understanding how to to read the Bible correctly. It's how we're, or it's why we're doing this podcast. But to miss the sarcasm, that's a roundabout mm-hmm. way of saying it, to miss the sarcasm, to miss the the realness of the characters and the people, and, and especially of Jesus, is to read the Bible incorrectly or to read it very um, kind of flatly, mm-hmm. you you know, uh, uh, not noticing those kind of details is to wildly misread it, mm-hmm. and and you can get in all kinds of trouble, um, especially if you're somebody who's trying to really investigate the faith. Um, yeah, it's a it's an important thing to be able to understand some of those those nuances that are there. In the way that the authors are telling the story, especially of Jesus, it, and it was funny. <laughs> and there are um, some of the figures of speech are so obvious. When Jesus says, "I am a door," nobody expects him to be a four by yeah. eight block of wood. Yeah. But when Jesus says, "If your eye offends you, pluck it out," there have been people throughout history who have thought that actually is what we should do. If your arm yeah. causes you to sin, cut it off. Uh, but the the other thing about there are two things here. Um, that I think I think it's it's important to recognize that Jesus is the interpretive lens by which we read all of the scriptures. That what's necessary in order to recognize a type or a shadow or an implication or a hint is actually the coming of the anotype. So we read the Old Testament differently because we know the major subject, the major character is Jesus. So when Jesus shows up, we say, oh, that's what this was yeah. all about, which is exactly what Jesus tells the his critics in John chapter 5. You read the scriptures, he says, because you think they they are the means of eternal life. Well, you're wrong. The Bible is not the means of eternal life. I am. And if you knew how to read the Bible, you would recognize me. And in fact, on the day of this is part of that snarky Jesus. On the day of judgment, I will not be your judge. Moses, whom you love so much, will be your judge because if Moses was here today, he would recognize me. That that I think is a real succinct statement of how we should read the Bible. We're not looking for great heroes of the faith in the Old Testament. We're looking for how does this point us forward to Jesus? And the second thing is that um, there really is—this is sound like an overstatement to make a point, 
there's really nothing new in the New Testament. What, what we see in the, old, in the New Testament is the language of the old, phrases, um, even stories from the old. That it seems like Jesus is reenacting and retelling the stories that are found in the Old Testament scripture. I mean, we referred last week to uh, to Jacob and Esau, this story of a of a man who runs and hugs his brother. I mean, that the prodigal son story. They're, they're yeah. just these stories are repeated over and over again. I, I mean, I learned that backwards. I, I had been raised in a tradition that taught me that the new is better than the old, that the old is only helpful because well, it's old. Provi- it's old. It's old. Yeah. We yeah. like the new. And I'm increasingly aware as I read through the Old Testament, this, I said this is backwards, I read through the Old Testament and say, that sounds like the New Testament. That sounds like, like, and that's that's exactly, it should be the other way around. We should be so familiar with the old that when we hear Jesus say what he said, we say, oh, that's, oh, that was the connection. That the Bible is, uh, the Bible's written long before the Chicago Manual style or Cape Arabian <laughs> or APA. Uh, and the, the biblical writers use the language that is very familiar to them. And I would say to Jesus followers today, you probably don't get a hearing by leading with the Bible says this. But if you're familiar with the biblical language, and and actually if you're conversing with somebody who is not a follower of Jesus, but actually uses language that you know came from the Bible, it's an interesting conversation to say, yeah, do you know where that language came from? You, yeah. You, you realize you just yeah. quoted the Bible and what, what you said? and the, Or you quoted Benjamin Franklin and thought it was the, the, the Bible. Also an interesting conversation when, when, when that happens. Yeah, yeah. Um, so so Jesus, Jesus shows up, and I want to I call attention to the genealogies. Mm. In Matthew one and in Luke three, especially because these are the things that, you know, quite frankly, if you're reading through the Bible, you're trying to understand the story, you're gonna blow past those. It seems very, uh, it's just not fun to read. This was the father of such and such, and he had begat him, and you know, all these kind of deals. The the genealogies, uh, I'm making light of it a little bit, uh, but they're actually really critical when you're talking about the story of the Bible, because when we get to the New Testament and we get to Jesus, it's apparently very important, especially to Matthew and Luke, that we know that Jesus is the Messiah who was promised in in all of in the Old Testament and all of these prophecies and and that he's particularly linked to David. And to Abraham, going back to the the covenant we talked about in Genesis 15 that that God made with Abraham, uh, it's important to recognize the the connection that Jesus is the one about whom those promises were made, and now we're going to read the story of how God begins to fulfill them. Yeah, for the people of Israel whose tribal identity was really important. 
And their tribal identity is important not because we want to be on the right side. We want to make sure that our tribe is better than your tribe. That's kind of contemporary tribalism. It's to recognize that we are people of the land, and the land is divided among the 12 tribes. And the the portions of the land that are divvied up um, to the families of that. So genealogies are incredibly important. You can't sell property long-term. It reverts back in the day of Jubilee to where it came from because that that's really important to the, so along comes, uh, along comes Jesus and, and you have that issue. And you also have the, the, um, um, the, the connection to the, the covenants, um, issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and you've got the two genealogies make it clear to us that this Messiah is actually a human being. Gods don't have genealogies. Uh, that this he actually is he is fully human, and that he is connected to Abraham. The two genealogies go genealogies go backwards. There are issues in in them. And to the person who says, "I just read this recently. How could the the birth of Jesus be so important?" If it's only mentioned twice in the New Testament, how could genealogies be so important if they're only mentioned twice? Well, they're mentioned twice. It's also <laughs> interesting, the the people who show up in the genealogy of Matthew, there are a couple of women who show up in that story. Um, and that's highly unusual in the, in the Hebrew uh, scriptures where— Women would be mentioned in genealogies from uh, Tamar to Rahab to Ruth uh, to the wife of Uriah down to Mary. These that this this one is quite frankly from a line of real people. Um, all and all those stories were well known to the people in Matthew's day. He didn't have to explain to them who Tamar was. Mm-hmm. They they knew that story of her interaction with her father-in-law. They don't have to explain to them who Rahab was. They they remember oh, Rahab, yeah. That was that's the family of the Canaanites who wasn't exterminated. The family wasn't exterminated, but they actually were blessed and became part. I mean God actually does have a plan for the nations and Ruth um, who is from Moab? I mean, they, they, these are these are um, these are real people, um, and Jesus is in the line. He's, he's a real person, in, yeah, in a real line. And the four gospels, as as you mentioned, they have what they have in common is they tell the story of Jesus' first coming, his life, his life, his, his ministry, his death and resurrection. But they they share it from different perspectives. It's it's not carbon copies. They're not for the exact same story. They have different purposes and reasons. And actually, we have other uh, podcasts we've done really about that. You can go you can go find some of those uh, if anybody's interested in that. But but they tell the story of his of his first coming. And so for the sake of uh, just asking the obvious question. So why why did Jesus come? Let's let's have the conversation about his his life and the purpose of what the Gospels are recording. Mm. What's all this about? There are a couple things. Um, It's about revealing who God is. We know who God is because of Jesus. Uh, John 
declares. Um, it's about um, explaining, and that might be not the right word, revealing. But uh, you know, I'll say I'll, I'll continue with explaining. It, it's a it's about explaining what all of this before was all about. All of this is moving somewhere. There is a goal and a purpose. And, and these are not just accidents of history, that God actually has a plan. So, and one of those is a deeply embedded theme that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Either the guilty one dies because the wages of sin is death, or there is a substitute. And there, so the the law of Moses has very explicit instructions for Thanksgiving sacrifices, for the Day of Atonement, for the Passover. And then Jesus comes along and fulfills all of them, and that he came to die as the substitute for the sins of all humanity, so that his his death was not an accident of history. It actually was the means by which redemption would be provided. But the, his death, his work on the cross is not the end of the story. That would be a tragic story. Everybody dies. Jesus dies. Like, okay. There's no happily ever after there. The, the, but the good news is because he is the God-man and because God's plan is an eternal plan and because God is life and light, uh, that this one came back from the dead, as I mentioned, which he predicted, that you're going to kill me, I'm going to come back from the dead. When he raised other people, like Lazarus, for example, they plotted to kill Lazarus because he was raised from the dead. Like, you're going to blame Lazarus for what Jesus did? Um, and so that he comes to reveal God, he comes to die as a substitute for sin, he comes to give us life and the hope of life. He comes to establish a kingdom. So repent, for the kingdom is near, I don't think, means repent and then the kingdom will come. I think there has always been a kingdom. God has always been Lord of heaven and earth. He has always been sovereign over the world that he has created. He's never turned his creation over to somebody else. But what he has done is mediated his rule differently throughout history. And that ultimately, Jesus actually told some parables about this, that ultimately his reign, that God's reign over creation will not be through a succession of sons of David, but actually will be through the son of David, who is Jesus, who is the the God-man. And, 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 and finally, I think part of what happens here is that we, we are amazed at how God fulfills his promises. So we expect X, what we get is X cubed. <laughs> so that instead of merely the establishment of a kingdom getting rid of wickedness, there actually is the change in the hearts and minds of people. So we have a new birth. We have this, uni this union with Christ that God's presence with us is not merely a merely sounds too cheap, but it's not merely that God is here, but God is actually here in body. He's actually here in the God-man, and that there is this intimate relationship 
with him is described in the New Testament as being in Christ and Christ in you. It's what Jesus predicts in the Upper Room Discourse in John, that you will re—it'll be good for you to that I leave because then the Spirit will come. You already know him because I'm with you, and when the Spirit comes, we will be, the Father and I will be with you and will be in you. That There's this intimacy of the relationship with God and his people. We skipped over in the Old Testament summary the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, this this promise that one day sin will be no more, that there will be an increased intimacy with God, everyone will know God, that there, there there's a heightened sense of a fulfillment that that I think everywhere Jesus goes, he breaks expectations. And he breaks expectations not because he does something that is completely unexpected, but it's it's three times what what was expected. And the other thing in him that is so it's amazing he lived as long as he did. He worked one day a week. He only worked on the Sabbath. I mean, if you take out the <laughs> Sabbath stories from the Gospels, you don't have much left until you get to the Passion narrative. And it's I mean over and over again. He explicitly runs through, bashes down the the legal requirements to say this. It is not about doing these things. It is not about practicing these because God is about something so much bigger than that. The problem with law is that law requires exceptions for every exception. And and if you have exceptions, now you have exceptions, and you no longer have a universal rule. So let me just make it simple for you, he says. It all boils down to this. Love God and love others. What does love require of me? What, What is a loving thing to do? And if that's too complex, he says, how about we make it really simple? Do unto others as you have them do unto you. And it's one thing for Jesus to say that, but Paul says that. James says that. I mean, this becomes a major theme in the New Testament. And it goes back to Leviticus. It goes all the way back to Leviticus. And in fact, that great story where this dude comes to Jesus and said, so what do I do to get eternal life? And Jesus said, what does the law tell you? And he goes back and he quotes, love God and love others. That does not mean that law is bad. It just means that grace triumphs over judgment. It means mercy triumphs over judgment. It means that grace is better than law. It means that that um, that God has established for us in the law of Moses over a long period of time a standard that is impossible for any of us to meet. And along comes Jesus and says, let me do two things. Let me keep the law perfectly. But let me also demonstrate that I think you misunderstood the law. The law of the Sabbath was not to make sure nobody is doing good works on the Sabbath. It means that if you find a donkey in the ditch, you pull it out. And if you see somebody who's in need, you stop and help them because life is more important than keeping the law. Love is more important than obedience because to obey is better than sacrifice. Samuel said to to Saul, but better than sacrifice is to do what is loving and kind. Be like God. If God is love, I think think God is love is the New Testament summary 
of Exodus 34, uh, merciful, compassionate, abounding in love and faithfulness. It boiled all that down to God is love. Yeah. And demonstrated most obviously by Jesus' life and obedience, but his death, his, his resurrection, which, you know, in the, in the scheme of the story, solved in an issue that came up in the Old Testament, which is there was forgiveness of sin for Israel through sacrifices we talked about of animals, but there, but they didn't last forever. There was still a problem. It didn't and solve the problem. It didn't solve the problem ultimately. And so in the ultimate act of love, God fixes our problem for us. Um, Jesus, Jesus dies for us. He's resurrected for us. And even that, this was so amazing to me, even that is not the end of the story. Mm. That's kind of somewhere in to- actually still towards the beginning mm. of the New Testament. But it, it, because we need needs not the right word, I guess. But I'll use it. We need more than forgiveness. We mm. need more than having a blank slate. We need the positive addition of the righteousness of God. It's predicted. Paul says in Romans, it's predicted in the Old Testament. It's what the law and the prophets spoke about. When Genesis 15, 6 says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is really the the unbelievable, humbling, amazing story that when when God looks at us, he sees his son, that he is, that we are, by virtue of his grace, we are as perfect as he is, that we have inherited his inheritance, that his his infinite inheritance is shared with us, not because we've earned it or deserved it. We've actually demonstrated over and over again that we don't deserve it, but that we have— um, yeah, it's a it's a gift of His grace to us. But but as you said, this is not the end of the story, because the work of redemption is not complete until, as Isaac Watts put it in Joy to the World, He comes to make His blessings known far as the curse is found, which interestingly um, is a stanza of that song that's often skipped when Christians sing Joy to the World, which strikes me as leaving out a major part of the plot, <laughs> that, that what, <laughs> we, what we have destroyed, what we break, God will one day make new. And um, that not so, so the, the, the gospel that many people have believed is a gospel that's really not much of a gospel at all. It says uh, you're going to die, and if you believe in Jesus, you get to go to heaven and hang out with him forever. Uh, I'm at the risk of sounding too snarky. If your goal is to go to heaven, you're going to be really lonely because heaven's going to be empty <laughs> when the creator of the universe comes back to the earth and makes the earth his home forever. So that heaven— then become heaven where God is becomes a place on earth. The the biblical story begins on 
than earth that God created, took a dark, empty, chaotic mess and made it good. We messed it up. The technical theological term is we screwed it up. We do it. We break everything we touch. It's why we can't have nice things because we don't know how to use them. But it's even worse than that. It's not merely our intentional breaking of things. It's our unintentional breaking of things. I mean, we drop things and shatter them. We had to clean up the mess. One day, I just love that statement in... in, um, Near the end of Revelation 21, uh, behold, I am making all things new. He doesn't say, I am making all new things. He doesn't say, I am destroying things. He doesn't say, I will make all things new. He says, I am making all things new. And that the creator of the universe is intimately involved in what's happening in his world today. And the means by which his redemptive work is carried out is normatively us. When he intervenes and does it, we call those miracles. But usually God's work in this world is carried out by his people. And I would say here, his people are not merely those who believe in Jesus and are Jesus followers, that a great deal of God's redemptive work in this world is carried out by people who are not professing Christians. A great deal of of damage happens in this world by people who are not professing Christians, and a great deal happens from people who are professing Christians. But that's what we were created to do and to be, uh, to be to be caretakers of the world that God has created. And ultimately, eventually, that's what we will do forever. That's that's the goodest of good news. I mean, it reminds me of one of the things that Jesus said famously, that the rain falls on the righteous and the wicked, which is also one of the great themes of the Bible, that God uh, blesses those who— could care less about him. I don't know how else to say it. Um, and throughout history, people of faith, the Israelites did this, Christians do this, other religions do this too. Throughout history, people have made the mistake of assuming we can discern God's blessing based upon what we can see in a person's life and experience. And, you know, that that text just destroys that. I mean, God, God is gracious and merciful and kind to people who don't give him any credit for it. Yeah, and that's also a very Old Testament theme. That's Jesus summarizing all kinds of stuff from the Old Testament, I think. So Gospels tell Jesus life, ministry, death, resurrection. You get to the book of Acts, right? And so in the book of Acts, it's a, it's a history book. So it's really our only pure historical book in the New Testament, but it it is similar in genre to the historical narratives of some of the Old Testament books, uh, Kings and Chronicles and Samuel and those kind of books. Um, What's Acts all about? So Mm. putting it in the context of the story, it, it does fall chronologically after the Gospels. And and also in the order of our our Bible books, and it, it fits nicely there. What what story does Acts tell, and what does it contribute? 
what we learned from the book of Acts is that there is a part two to the life and ministry of Jesus. Uh, the disciples wrestle with this, and it takes them a long time to understand that there is a gap between Jesus' first coming and his second. They seem to expect, and the questions they ask and the way they respond seem to indicate this. So they meet with him in Acts chapter 1 and say, so, kingdom? (laughs) And Jesus said, you don't get it. Uh, It's not about restoration of the kingdom. And the timing of the establishment of the final stage of the kingdom is in the Father's hands, not mine. You, you have a job to do. A job I gave you back in John in the Upper Room Discourse, uh, and I promise you the Spirit, that your job is to tell people what I said and did. Your job is to spread this message throughout the world. And then he's taken up into heaven. And they stand there looking up into heaven. And the, the angel comes and says, what are you doing? He gave you something to do. Go and do your job. It's not quite that direct, <laughs> but... But it is, but but there's also the promise there. This same Jesus you have seen ascend to heaven is coming back, and nobody knows why. So we occupy until he comes. We work while we wait. We 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 do what he left us here to do. And the Book of Acts is the beginning of that story of how the the message of the resurrected Christ spreads from Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth. But a major part of that spread is rooted in the training and the change of the disciples, that that these guys who spent all that time with Jesus, um, who heard him talk about his plan for the nations, somehow thought it was all about Jews. It was all about Israel. So it takes Peter, that vision in, in, in the, uh, and then his traveling to the um, centurion's house, Cornelius, to realize that, oh, the dietary regulations don't apply to me anymore, that vision of food mm-hmm. coming down from heaven. Uh, oh, and it's actually not about diet at all. It's about people, that God actually is no respecter of persons, that God actually, this message of salvation is for everyone. And and then along comes Paul, um, who's a a persecutor of Christians, who's on his way to destroy Christians until Jesus knocks him flat on his back and blinds him and calls him. What are those? Just this is this is the kind of confrontation with the creator of the universe that you would think would change somebody. And it did change him. (laughs) And yet the Paul we meet in the book of Acts can still be a little bit hard to get along with because his personality is what it is. Um, But we also see the third thing we see in the book of Acts is how the gospel spreads and expands but it does so sometimes with in the midst of conflict and persecution. That statement Paul makes 
that we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Uh, and then the book ends, but that, that's not the end of the story because yeah. and you're right. This is the beginning of a story that is now 2,000 years old as the the kingdom, as the church continues to grow and expand around the world. It's, it's amazing, really is amazing, that this group of men who were locked in a room afraid of what was happening around them, when the Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost, they have a boldness and a confidence that expands throughout the whole world. And the church, the church is alive and well around the world. The Christianity is not in peril. Um, it's it's a growing. And you say, well, that's true of other religions too, right? The difference is Christianity is true. Those other religions are not. How do we know that? Because the Bible and. That's about the best we can do, <laughs> because if, in fact, this, although I can say in addition, I mean, it is possible for 11 men to get together and to make up a messianic figure, to make up a religion and go tell people it's true. It's in, inconceivable. I know what that word means. It's unbelievable that all 11 of them would die for a made-up story. Uh, I just think the the fact that that they died for belief in this resurrected Jesus and people throughout history have believed in him is a pretty strong argument for the truthfulness of Christianity. And I I this isn't the podcast for this, but I wouldn't discount at all the experience of people who claim to know Jesus. You mm-hmm. and I included millions of people down through the last couple of millennium who we've all had we've we've experienced him this is not a purely academic thing in fact most most of us don't become believers for academic reasons something happens to us we have an encounter uh typically unexpected and not looked for and then we go about trying to figure out what happened and and who this who this is and and what he's about and and we grow from there the reality of jesus is well attested in history and the reality of the resurrection is too and it just it's just hard to argue that a man who predicts his death that's relatively easy but also predicts the time of his return and pulls it off. That's a pretty significant trick. As Andy Stanley loves to say, you can trust anyone you want. I choose to believe in the guy who came back from the dead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So back to Acts. Let's kind of wrap up Acts, but great great summary of Acts. And by the way, I think it covers about 30-ish years after after Jesus' resurrection. So the early few decades of the expansion of the church and the gospel around the Mediterranean and so forth. Um, then we move in the New Testament anyway to the letters. 
and there's 21 different letters that are in the New Testament. They're, they range in style and author. Uh, 13, I believe, are Paul's length. Some are very tiny. Some are grand, uh, like Romans, 16 dense, amazing chapters. But uh, I feel like we can summarize the letters pretty simply. A lot of them, especially Paul's, are written during the timeline of Acts. So he's running around doing missionary journeys and taking the message about Jesus all over the Mediterranean, and he's writing back to these different cities and these churches that he's founded. We have some of those letters and writings, and those are those are there for us to read. And then we have other other letters written by different people who were associated with Jesus that um, that have been. Um, recorded and, and preserved for us here in in the New Testament, and so just as far as where they fit in the story, that's where the letters fit in those early few decades of of how did Jesus followers get this thing kind of going in his his absence. Then, see, so you're flipped over over to Revelation. So then we get to Revelation, and. Revelation is a very, very interesting book. People who've never read the Bible even know that it's just kind of weird, right? Even even for the Bible, it's a little – it's kind of strange. But it's a very important book when we talk about the story because it bookends so nicely with Genesis and especially looking at the end of Revelation – with the beginning of Genesis, and I would encourage you, actually, anybody who's listening to this, go read Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation uh, 20 and 21. And, 21 and 22. 21 and 22, sorry. And, and compare them and just see what – you'll get a great understanding of the story of the Bible if you read those four chapters and just think about them and compare them. So um, when we think about the idea of, of recreation, uh, the second coming of Christ – what he's going to do, what God is going to do on the earth, and what what heaven ultimately is like. Uh, what do we what do we learn, and and what what really should we be excited for? So the book of Revelation does bookend; it completes it. This is mentioned before this remarkable symmetry. Um, it is the ending of this story, which introduces the next chapter of the story. I think it's also important to recognize and to remind us, remind ourselves that the, the epistles, the letters that Paul and others wrote were real letters from real people to real people most of whom were known by the the author, and, and all of them look back at the first coming of Jesus and the significance of the death, burial, resurrection of this central figure in human history, but they all look forward to what is to come. None of them say, you just, you need to know this about Jesus. They're all looking forward to his return. They're all looking forward to the new creation. They're all looking forward to something that is to come. And they're asking the question, so how do we live in the midst of this? They are they are not primarily morality tales, although they deal with morality. They're Christological. They're all focusing on the, the gospel and the hope of what is to come. And then 
John, who's the last surviving of the apostles, the rest of them were both from the scripture and from Christian tradition. We know that they are martyred fairly young. John lives to be an old man, and he is exiled to the island of Patmos, and he has this series of visions. And and the question here, part of it's weird because they're apocalyptic visions. Uh, One of the questions is, so does John see visions, and he's explaining to us the visions, or does he actually see what is to come? I think the best answer is the first one, that he sees these apocalyptic visions. These these visions um, are—they're strange. They're weird. They're flying locusts and dragons, and they're, I mean, they're, they're amazing. But as many people have observed, they, they are deeply rooted in the Old Testament Scripture, that the imagery that's here, the language that's here, is biblical language, so that, that we, we are to connect these, the fulfillment here with what had been predicted in the past. And there are a variety of ways to take the book. Is it describing events in history um, as it unfolds? Is it describing events in the past? Is it describing events in the future? I think it's describing events in the future, but that's a subject for another day. But nobody disagrees with this. When we come to the end of the book, there is this is amazing completion of the story. Uh, Genesis 1 begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Revelation 21, 1 says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Um, For the first heaven, the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. The first earth, the first heaven and earth had passed away. So does that mean that the earth as we know it passes out of existence? Well, that would be kind of weird. Not to mention it would break the pattern. But here's why it would be weird. Uh, In Revelation 19, Jesus descends to the earth. This is what the disciples are looking for, Jesus to return. And Jesus returns, and there's judgment of the righteous and the wicked at the end of chapter 20. And and there are people who are on the earth. So if the earth is annihilated, what happens to them? And as I say to people, um, it's one thing if the earth is destroyed. But heaven's destroyed. So if we, so, we would be homeless, and God would be homeless. That'd be kind of weird. So no, probably passed away doesn't mean passed out of existence, but is replaced by something better. The old is gone; the new has come. Language that Paul uses in Corinthians, for example. And there's no longer any sea. Uh, I, I I would skip over that because I don't like the ocean. I don't like seashores, but my wife does. And she's really disappointed that there will be no beach in the eternal state. So I would say to her, uh, I think the sea is Old Testament imagery for the place of wickedness. It's where dragons live. It's, it's, so this is not literally a sea, but it's to say there will be no more evil. And if you don't like that view, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I want to help my wife have a hope. Uh, and that's and how you read the Bible, by whatever makes your wife feel good, right? Is that the lesson that we should take away? If my reading of the Bible hurts her, 
and there is a way to read it that doesn't hurt her, I'm going to choose the way that doesn't hurt her. <laughs> Good answer. Uh, then he, John says, I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. There will be no more desert rain. There will be no more all of the Bono lyrics. For the old order of things has passed away. Genesis 1, God creates. Genesis 2, God comes into the creation to create the man, and then he leaves. In Revelation 21, the creator makes the earth his dwelling forever. This is such a powerful reminder of what it means to be like God. God, at the end of the story, doesn't say, you come and live where I am. He says, I'm going to come and live where you are. And I think the reason why he does that is because of Jesus. That when Jesus took on flesh, when the creator became a creature, while remaining the creator, he is no longer a, a disembodied a heavenly creature. He is now an earthling, and he he has now become one of us. So he makes the earth his home. And when he makes the earth his home, his father moves in with him. And the spirit is already here. That God makes his dwelling among the people, and he does so forever. And he who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. This write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. In chapter 22, we have a similar story, but it's different. Chapter 21 seems to me as parallel to Genesis 1. Chapter 22 is parallel to Genesis 2, that now the focus is on the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of the great street of the city. And there's a river, the water of life, that flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb this in an earlier generation, that gospel song, Shall We Gather at the River, parallel to the U2's song, Where the Streets Have No Name. One focuses on the river, the other focuses on the street, and according to Revelation 22, the river flows down the street. Did it really take us almost to the end of episode three to talk about U2? It, and there were two. <laughs> yeah, there. Uh, on each side of the river stood the tree of life. Tree of life. Tree of life. Yeah, that's Genesis 2, the, the two trees in the, in the center of the, the garden, the tree of life and the other tree, the tree of, uh, the tree of uh, I don't remember. Oh, yeah, the knowledge of good and evil. It's not here. Only the tree of life is here. It yields its fruit every month. The leaves are for the healing of the nations. And everybody knows there is no need for healing. There's no need for health care when there is no more death or crying or sorrow or pain. This is, a, this is figurative language that connects us back to Genesis 1 and 2. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads, which nobody takes as a, we actually get tattoos of Jesus on our foreheads. Not there to be anything wrong with that, just 
Just I would recommend not getting a tattoo <laughs> on your forehead because it would be a real bummer to have the wrong font throughout eternity. <laughs> there will be no more night. Huh. No more night. So there was darkness that covered the earth. God spoke and said, let there be light. And he separated the light from the darkness, but there was still darkness. When the work of redemption is complete, there's no darkness. It's better. It's much better. Yeah. That yeah, 12 hours of light is not nearly as good as 24 hours of light. Uh, they will not need the light of a lamp or a light of a sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. To reign with God doesn't mean what it means in a fallen world, in a world where everything works the way it's supposed to work, in a world where the king is present on the earth. There are no, There's no need for other people in ruling categories. They will reign forever and ever, I think, is John's way of saying that we will be with the king, and where he is, we will be, and what he's doing, we will be doing forever and ever. These words, the angel said, are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God who inspires the prophets, sent his angel to show us his servants, the things that must soon take place. Um, yeah, where is the behold? I make all things new. It is twenty-one five. Twenty-one five. That's what Google said. Yep. Yep. He was seated on the throne. Said, "I am making everything new." It was a former student, good friend of mine, who. Um tweeted recently, and I think he's right about that. This is the summary of the gospel. I am making everything mm. new. It's the voice of the one who is sitting on the throne. He is at work making things new, and we get to join him in his work. The, the book ends with the reminder that Jesus says, I'm coming soon. And critics of Christianity say it's been 2,000 years, so how can you say it is soon? And I would say, since Jesus doesn't know when it's going to be, and it is sooner today than it was yesterday, it's still soon. And say, so, well, how do you know it's true? Because he promised that he was coming. Why should we trust him? Because he came back from the dead, and he fulfilled all those promises and prophecies that were predicted of him the first time. The response of John is, it is true. I agree. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And then the book the book ends the way the Bible ends. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. That the God who is the creator of heavens and earth is a God of mercy and grace and compassion. And the blessing that John ends the book of Revelation with is a blessing that God's grace is with his people. It's an amazing ending, a great podcast episode, I think, as well. The story of creation, fallen redemption, and recreation. That's the story of the Bible. 
That's what we've been talking about. Uh, I really couldn't think of anybody better to have as my guest for this series than you. So thank you very much for being my guest, Dr. Kreider. You're welcome. And thank you to everyone for, for listening. We sure hope that you've enjoyed learning more about the story that is in the Bible. And until next time, thanks for listening.